was my intention to escape from the first moment when I have seen where I am. But at that time, it was particularly urgent because I knew that all was prepared for the murder of one million Jews from Hungary. And because it was close to Slovakia, I thought that it would be possible to give the warning. Naturally, I wanted to leave too. That's a scene I mean, from the uh, 1985 documentary called Shoah by Claude Lanzmann. And the voice of the man speaking in that heavy European accent belonged to Rudolf Verba. Verba lived in Vancouver after the Holocaust. He died there in 2006. But when he was a teenager growing up in Slovakia, he was deported to Auschwitz. He was 17 when he got there in 1942. And for two years, he worked as a slave laborer, unloading the trains, cataloging the victims' belongings, and figuring out how the Nazis tricked the Jews of Europe into going quietly to the gas chambers. Verba vowed to memorize everything he saw, and then he and a friend successfully escaped from Auschwitz in April 1944 so they could warn the world how the Nazis were murdering Jews. Maybe five Jews ever successfully did what he did, out of hundreds of attempts. But Verba and Alfred Wetzler's feat is considered the most important because it was thanks to their subsequent 32-page report, complete with diagrams and facts and figures, which eventually got out to the press, and then the Allied leaders read it, and so did the Pope. And although they never bombed the train tracks to Auschwitz as Verba had hoped they would do, they did bomb Hungary. So by July of 1944, Hungary's leader bowed to international pressure and he blocked any more deportations of his country's huge Jewish population to the death camp. Verba is credited with saving 200,000 Hungarian Jews, although he remained bitter for the rest of his life that he couldn't save the rest and furious that even some of the Jewish community leaders didn't believe him. Now a new book has come out about him. It's by a British journalist who recounts in thrilling detail how Verba did it, and why the world should consider this forgotten whistleblower one of the greatest Jewish heroes of our time. He knew that it was paramount to have the facts, and it was that zeal and determination that this would be known that actually drove him to this perform this incredible act of memory. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Wednesday, January the 25th, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Jonathan Friedland's new book is called The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. And it reads like a thriller, but the author insists none of it is made up although the cover does mistakenly credit Verba with being the first Jew to break out of Auschwitz, which Friedland has subsequently clarified. Friedland takes you inside the pile of lumber in Auschwitz, where Verba hid for three days, covered by some tobacco soaked in gasoline to fool the guard dogs. Then they bolted through the fence and spent a harrowing 11 days fleeing through German-occupied Poland back to their hometown in Slovakia, which at the time was collaborating with the Nazis. Jonathan Friedland joins me now from London. Of all countries, Canada has a very important claim on this story. 31 years of Rudolf Verba living in Canada. No, it's absolutely a Canadian story, I think, in two ways. I mean, as you know, there are two Canadas. So the book tells the story of Rudolf Verba, who, as you say, spent many years of his life, the final decades of his life in Canada with the sea in Vancouver, 
as a professor of biochemistry or an associate professor of biochemistry at the University of British Columbia. He was also unusual just because of the sheer length of time he spent in Auschwitz. He worked as a slave. You know, I don't know whether people realize this, that in addition to the death camp, where there were obviously gas chambers and crematoria, there was also an Auschwitz concentration camp of with tens of thousands of people put to work as slaves. And one area of the camp was known by the inmates as Canada with a K, um, partly because it was the first the beginning of a German sentence, Canada. Um, and so that's one theory. But the other theory is it was named after actual Canada. And that's because this was the place that was famous slash mysterious within Auschwitz, because Auschwitz was obviously a place of murder and destruction and terrible deprivation, hunger and thirst. But it was known that within the camp was a place which was the sort of El Dorado of Auschwitz, a place where there was food and drink and fine wines and silk and jewels and diamonds and so on. Rudolf Werber, Rudy found out about it because he was assigned to work there quite early on in his time in Auschwitz. And at first he didn't realize what he was looking at, but over time he realized that this was a place consisted of more or less six giant warehouses where goods were sorted and uh, stored. And those goods were, he didn't know what they were at first, um, but he slowly realized these were the worldly goods, the possessions that Jews who had been deported to Auschwitz from across Europe had brought with them. And they called it Canada, so says the story, so the story goes, because Canada, the country, had a particular place in the imagination of Central Europeans. It was seen as a place or where the streets were paved with gold. Let's talk a bit about the other part of the story, which was how a teenager at 17, going through what you just said, could keep all this information stored in his mind where he had to leave school very early there he wasn't trained as a i don't know statistician he was a kid like you were when you first encountered him at about the same age watching the film of uh shoah by lanceman that's right so how does a, how do you understand that incredible feat that he was able to count deaths, count all this, see all this, and then be able to remember it all. It was seared into his memory, yes. but he had to work at learning it all the time. Tell us about that. Yes. I mean, I did toy with calling the book The Memory Man, because as well as escaping from Auschwitz, which is already huge and so rare, he had performed this, as you say, this feat of memory. I, this, in answering how he was able to do it, it's it's related to why he did it and what happened. They're, in some ways, they're two sides of the same coin. So he worked, as I mentioned before, in Canada. Um, he then was again sent as a slave to work on the ramp, the railway platform, where Jewish Jews were brought on those trains, those transports, sometimes up to five a day, often in the dead of night, unloading these. Uh, pass, you know, deportees, uh, crucially separating them from their possessions, which were then taken to Canada with a K. But he saw this night after night after night, these Jews arriving. And that's when he really saw close up the kind of industrialized process of selection and that was leading to the, you know, the great majority, 90 to 95% of those who were selected were sent to uh, deaths in the gas chambers. He came to this great and important realization, which is that he noticed everyone who was arriving had no idea where they were, had no idea to what the purpose of this place 
was um, that he understood. And the reason they didn't have any idea was that they had been lied to from beginning to end. The Nazis had told them they were simply being deported to new lives. They would start new living in new communities in the East. That's why they'd taken all those pots and pans and children's clothes and children's exercise books. They believed they were going to a new life. That's why they would get off those trains in relatively orderly fashion. And what 17, 18 year old Rudy clocked and understood was that this was not just sort of an odd thing or a coincidence. It was absolutely central to the Nazis method. If there'd been chaos and protest, the whole Nazi method would have come uh, un uh, unraveled. And so at that point, Rudolf Erber realizes somebody has to tell these people who are arriving here because they are instantly rendered powerless by the fact that they have no idea uh, what fate awaits them because they can't mount any kind of resistance even and he was he had no illusions about this he didn't think these people would mount some sort of armed revolt you know they were children they were uh, elderly they had no weapons obviously but he did think they might panic if they knew and a panic might cause a stampede and a stampede would be very hard for the nazis to manage so he decided somebody has to escape um and tell the jews of the world what fate awaits them because that's the only hope of slowing down throwing sand in the gears of the nazi killing machine and he realizes if they if he does it because he's a young man with a kind of arrogance of youth he thinks somebody has to do it it might as well be me he um realizes that such a, a person as him would need to he couldn't just go out escape from Auschwitz and say look they're killing people there every day he would have to have chapter and verse facts detailed facts and so he's so determined to have those facts that he performs this extraordinary feat of memory, uh, as you say. So he notes every transport coming in. He counts the number of cattle cars. He works out how many on average are in each car, therefore gets an overall number for that transport. He remembers the date, the point of origin, and he remembers that at a rate of four or five a day for the best part of two years. And he stores it in his head drawing on he's an extraordinary he was a very bright boy i've done research into his life before you know growing up in slovakia he was very bright he was sort of precociously good scientist but as you yeah you rightly say he was not a trained statistician i think the truth is it was because it was so important the, the nazis kept numbers and details and facts and documents which can be now sort of looked at and checked in the documents post post holocaust he didn't have a so where to store all this he didn't smuggle it out in his uh underwear or what have you or in his body cavities he had it up here is the number actually correct very good very good question um you're quite right there was no chance for him to um uh write anything down that was com completely forbidden even to be caught with a pencil and paper could be a death sentence um there was no way of doing that and in fact other people later on in the subsequent decades have sort of wondered how was he able to do this act of memorizing and, and was and some people have even been skeptical about it I, incidentally a story we might come on to later but i've corroborated since more, the other people who knew him um after the war have, have testified to the fact that he had a freakishly good memory and i've heard some amazing stories about that as to whether the figure is accurate um, his estimate of the number of people killed in Auschwitz by working through what he did was 1.765 million. Now, that is in excess of the figure that is the official figure of the Auschwitz Museum, 
for example, in in uh, you know obviously in today's Poland, which says that the figure is more like one point one million nine hundred thousand of whom were Jews. But there are people who say that figure is an undercount and an underestimate, and work still goes on um, to that uh, end um, to produce that figure. So his overall sort of global estimate may be wrong, but I think his figures for transport by transport have been have proved pretty reliable. And certainly in terms of when he says it was this town on this day, that has stacked up amazingly well. In the book, you have revealed sort of fresh details about his personal life, his family life, and who he was, warts and all. Yes. Do you feel that because he was so prickly and angry about what had happened to the Jews and to his his testimony, because of that kind of the way he was, he didn't get the recognition, the veneration, the adulation that people say as Elie Wiesel got later in life, more because of how he delivered it than, and the kind of person he was than what he actually accomplished? Yes, I do think broadly that. And I think there was one aspect of, of, of the way he told the story, which you picked up on, and you're right to do it, which I think also played a part. And that is this, because you said the Allies didn't listen. And that's really true. And the book documents the resistance, you know, prejudice, there was anti-Semitic prejudice in, involved. There was also some practical objections to, okay, we've got this information, but what earth can we do about it? There's no way we can bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz, said various advisors in London and Washington, because that will, uh, you know, practically is impossible. And there was also just sheer incredulity, including from Jews who just could not believe that such a place could exist in the middle of 20th century Europe. I mean, it just was unimaginable. And so therefore, the, the narrative that Rudy carried around later life was in a sense that not enough had been done with the report that he had gone to huge lengths. I mean, one of this, one of the very, very few people ever, very few Jews ever to escape from Auschwitz. I mean, you know, just a tiny handful did that. An amazing adventure story of how he, first of all, how he and Fred Wetzler together did their escape, but also, you know, crossing Nazi-occupied Poland, marshes and mountains and rivers and forests to smuggle out this the truth of Auschwitz, finding their way to the remnant tiny Jewish community of Slovakia, pouring out all this evidence in in a you know in hiding in a basement room in the Slovak town of Zilina, eventually becoming this 32-page single-spaced report, the Verba Wetzel report. It's an amazing story of heroism and and action. Um but it did, you know, reached people who didn't act the way that Rudy had wanted them to act. And therefore, it's very easy to say, look, the, no one listened. Actually, what did happen is eventually it did find its way into, you know, reached the desks of Roosevelt and Churchill and the Pope. And once it had become public, once a copy had reached a journalist and it made it into the public press, then world leaders felt in some ways shamed into acting. And they did act. And I would describe the diplomatic sequence that played out, whereby pressure from the Pope and from Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt in Washington, on the leader of the of Hungary, um, led the leader of Hungary to call a halt to the Nazi deportations of Jews from within Hungary, um, having tolerated them, turned a blind eye to them for, for the best part of two months, a very rapid period of 56 days in which staggeringly 437,000 Jews, the fastest uh, 
rate of its kind. 437,000 Jews were deported from um, Hungary to Auschwitz and uh, there to be killed. At the end of that period, the leader under pressure from the Pope and Roosevelt uh, did or issue this order that they be stopped. And therefore, the last Jews of Hungary who had not yet been deported, the Jews of Budapest, numbering estimates vary, but up to 200,000 of them were saved from those deportation trains. And that is directly traceable to the Verbovetzler report. So I I'm, and so I really want to give Rudy credit for that, even though, as you say, he himself could, did not think that, you know, that he had been listened to or sufficiently. Uh, he that was a huge achievement and um and he deserves for that reason alone to be recognized as a towering figure of the period up there with primo levi or anne frank or oscar schindler you know these people whose stories define our understanding of the holocaust he is this huge figure um which makes it all the more baffling why he doesn't have the standing and recognition and the fame of, say, an Elie Wiesel. Well, part of it is because he didn't, you know, trumpet his own achievements. He didn't talk much about the 200,000 who were spared those deportation trains. Instead, he talked with anger about the 437,000 who weren't and who he believed could have been saved if they had read his warning, which was not distributed. The Hungarian Jewish leadership did not pass on his warning which was a source of huge anger in his life. And I think that the, the fact that he didn't sort of big up his own achievement and the fact that he was so angry about it meant that he was a very uncomfortable, awkward witness. And I describe in the book how Vancouver even, which is, you know, not a place that has a vast, enormous Jewish community or even a vast or enormous community of Holocaust survivors. It had relatively very few it would organize an annual symposium for high school students about the Holocaust. And there would be a panel with Holocaust survivors. And one of the organizers of that effort told me um, that even though they had living in their town, the man who is in some ways the ultimate Holocaust survivor, the ultimate Auschwitz survivor, nearly two years in Auschwitz, a man sought out by historians and experts as having the most panoramic view of Auschwitz, they did not invite him to that symposium for high school students. Why? Because they feared that he would, in the words of the official who told me about it, descend into accusations and rage. They couldn't. You couldn't rely on an invitation to Rudy Verba ending in him just telling, uh, you know, mor morally uplifting stories that yes, there was this evil, but good people came through. That's what people mainly want to hear, I think, from Holocaust survivors. And Rudy wouldn't play that game. And I found a document where he writes to a BBC TV producer saying, I am not your cliched Holocaust survivor. You know, he was aware that he wasn't playing the game. And I think that played a big part in, in him not getting the recognition he deserves. And, and in some ways, it's trying to write that wrong that was a big motive in for me in writing this book. Well, some some people who uh, reviewed your book, and, and including Alan Twigg, uh, who runs this RudolphVerba.com website, talk about his rage in some of the language even that we can see his original title of his own memoirs was I will not forgive it got changed later he used the term desktop murderers I love that term tell me how what that means to you desktop murders who were they you know front and center in Rudy's mind were very specifically those who had failed to pass on his warning and more specifically still the individual figure, controversial figure, 
of Rudolf Kastner, who was the de facto leader of Jews in Hungary, who um, did not pass on the Verber Wetzler report, this amazing 32-page account of what, what fate awaited Jews if they ended up in Auschwitz. Now, there are, we won't litigate it here, but there are people who make a case for the defense of Kastner, and there are people who take the opposite view. Rudy was adamant that Kastner had made, was guilty of a great moral failure. Now, I think the reason why he didn't act on it was that he was in, uh, Rudolf Kastner was in talks with the Nazis, and he was negotiating what, if you are a Kastner defender, you believe was a plan, an attempt to save the Jews of Hungary by somehow uh, procuring enough cash to bribe the Nazis. If you are an opponent of Kastner, as Rudy Verber was, you believe that he absolutely knew that there was no such deal on the cards with the Nazis and instead were keen to save only those 1684 Jews who in the end were saved, spirited out of Hungary on what would become known as the Kastner train. At the end of your book, you write that Rudy didn't feel that he was a hero, but was he a religious man, an observant man? I don't think he was buried even on Shabbat, as opposed to when you're not supposed to be. So can you tell us a little bit about his Jewish context? Sure. He didn't say he was a hero, but I offer as a thought, perhaps we should see him more in the tradition of the Jewish prophet whose warning is not heeded. And, you know, our sources are full of and it seemed to me that he was in that tradition and even the kind of rage and restlessness felt to me as almost made him a kind of biblically prophetic figure. But that is not perhaps an image he would have turned to. He was avowedly non-religious. He'd grown up ultra-Orthodox. He would have worn the peyot, the side curls, the tzitzit, the, you know, the ritual fringes. His grandfather in uh, the town of Nitra was properly, you know, ultra-Orthodox. Uh, he soon got rid of that stuff. Um, there's a story that he used to like to tell about how he was a man of science. And so age 14 or 15, he took, takes himself into a restaurant, orders pork, and thinks, if this is wrong, and if God is offended by this, then a light, bolt of lightning will strike me. And if God doesn't care less, and there is no God, perhaps, then I won't. And there was no bolt of lightning. So he thought, right, let's none of that anymore. He dismissed it all. He was rarely afterwards, in the, uh, after the war, and in Canada, rarely seen inside a synagogue. Um, in fact, he was invited, I think, in 1997, to speak, uh, uh, perhaps 1998, at a Kristallnacht uh, commemoration event in uh, Vancouver. It was held in the, you know, in the synagogue there, and his wife wondered if that had possibly been the first time he had set foot in a synagogue since, you know, maybe the war period. That said, and we're deliberately not going to say what this trauma, traumatic event in his post-war life was, because I think people should read that in the book. But later on in life, there was a terrible trauma in his life. And at that point, I noticed in his letters, he did start talking about a higher purpose, a higher being. He started using capital letters as if you would about talking about the divine I think it was a moment of crisis for him, but somehow there was something in him, maybe buried from long before, even before Auschwitz, that did at least turn to the notion of uh, a supernatural deity. There are fewer and fewer Holocaust survivors around. We're coming up to International Holocaust Remembrance Day. 
the 78th, I think it is, of the liberation of Auschwitz. So where does Rudolf Verba's life and achievement fit in for today's world? How do you translate what he did for people today? What's his message? It's a hard but good question. Um, the message, I think, for Canadians is that, look, in your own history, he is one of the towering figures of the Second World War period uh, and of modern Jewish history was a Canadian. That was the last citizenship he had. He had many in his life. But the place he was lived, I think, probably more years than anywhere else, actually, was Canada. Um, and he made a happy life for himself uh, with his wife, Robin, and with his place at UBC in Vancouver. So that's a point of pride, I think, for Canadians, that he finally was able to sort of rest, find a place to stop. He'd been running and running and running, escaping and escaping, escaping his the country of his birth, escaping even from his own name. He wasn't born Rudolf Verb. Um, so that's a point of pride for Canadians. I think the other point I would say is that it's, or should be, is a, is a universal point, which is this thing about the the almost the necessity, that's the word I would use, the necessity of facts and truth and evidence that Verber was scrupulous about that. He knew that the only way, and in the end, it did lead to the saving of those sparing of those 200,000 people in Budapest, the only way to persuade a perhaps uncaring world was to accumulate evidence and facts. And he, when we are cavalier about the importance of accuracy and truthfulness with all the sort of garbage that's available on social media and rumor and conspiracy theory, we should be reminded by this man and what he did of the almost sacred value and worth of truthful uh, information and of truth itself. You can learn more about Verba and the new book by clicking on the links in our show notes. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. This week marks International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is January the 27th, Friday, and the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, six months after Verba's escape. The National Canadian Commemoration Ceremony is being held in Ottawa at the Holocaust Monument just west of Parliament Hill. The Prime Minister and the opposition leaders were set to attend, plus Holocaust survivors, ambassadors and other dignitaries. You can watch the live stream at the link in our show notes. And monuments across the country will be lit in yellow on Friday for the occasion, including the CN Tower, Niagara Falls, BC Place and the Champlain Bridge. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. Thank <music> you.